Well, welcome back, everybody, for another fun episode of the Rolex Whiskey Passion Project. And I have a dear friend and whiskey lover on here today that I cannot wait to chat everything whiskey because she has seen a lot. I'd like to welcome Tracy Franklin. Trace, welcome to the show, Millie. How are you? Thank you so much, Kevin. I'm excited to be included. I'm really well. Like, so since we've last seen each other, so much has happened. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, downtown Italy, San Diego, a lot's changed in that time. So (laughs) much has happened. And a lot's changed since we first met in Brooklyn a million years ago when we were pouring, I think, Snow Phoenix from Glenfiddich at night. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Super excited. (laughs) I am too. I I, am. Tell me, I am too. Tell me a little history about yourself. Tell me how we. I guess, I guess, introduce yourself to my guests pretty please. Absolutely. A pleasure. So I have had a very strange path into whiskey. I am a person who just loves flavor. So my father was in the military. He would travel um, overseas, go to DIY, and he tried to keep us as stable as possible. So he would leave more often than, than moving the whole family. But when he would come back, he would try to introduce us to the different cuisines that he tried. So we would run around California trying to find the closest, you know, Saudi Arabian, like, Arabic restaurants or trying to find great Japanese, finding great Korean, like, and we really had these amazing open palettes because my dad wanted to share with us all of the amazing things that he was learning. And so I have just become this person who pursues flavor and also a person who just loves to perform. So um, thanks to, it's funny because I actually got accepted to go to um, USC and I was going to study biology. My dad was like, no, follow your heart. And so I studied theater and I came out of school working. I was really blessed. I joined a cruise ship and traveled the Mediterranean, the Baltic. I then joined a Disney show and traveled the world, um, singing and dancing in nine languages. I then um, decided I didn't want to do a child's show anymore. I wanted to move to New York and I booked hairspray and then purple and toured the United States. And in the midst of all that, I was in New York City and I when I wasn't auditioning, I was behind a bar. So I started to learn more and more about spirits. And I um, actually it was while I was on tour that I, I fell in love with whiskey. I realized that I could drink whiskey and still sing in the morning. So it was super important. <laughs> I mean, I think that's that's a common thread, right? Like, I think for a lot of us that drink whiskey, we know what the outcome is going to be. So it's like, cool, yeah. I'll drink this because I know what's going to happen tomorrow. As opposed to all the other stuff, we're like, oof, that could hurt. Exactly. I was able to kind of measure how much I was actually drinking. We knew what proofs you're at. You know that you just sip and you're fine. So I just really fell into this world of whiskey and realized there were so many different flavors and countries it was coming from. And I was just enamored with it. So when I went back to New York, I tried to find people who were representing those brands. And luckily, I I met a lot of really open and incredible brand representatives and ambassadors, distillers who embraced me immediately and took me into their world and taught me as much as they could. And while I was doing all of that, I started to realize that in that world, you get health insurance and a 401k and all of these amazing benefits. I was like, what is happening? And while I was still performing, that was my my like kind of backup job. And I decided to take a short break from after an off-Broadway show that I did and moved to New York with or moved to Tampa, Florida with my then a boyfriend <laughs> who was now my husband. And uh, when in the move there, I ended up working at a place called Haven, which was a huge whiskey bar and had 400 whiskeys behind me, as well as a really fantastic wine program. And I just, I mean, 
when you have that much to learn, like right out on hand, you can't help but just become like a little bit obsessed. Well, I mean, I couldn't help but become a little bit obsessed. I am obsessive. So I just kept digging and digging and got to this point where I became like the whiskey woman of Florida. So people would come into the bar. I would set flights for them so they could learn specific things about whiskey. So did you want to learn more about mash bills? I have all these whiskeys to lay in front of you so you can learn about mash bills. Do you want to learn about entry proofs? Cool. I'll, I'll do a whole flight of entry proof like things for you. So one day I happened to have a gentleman who sat in front of me and asked for Glenfiddich. So I, I talked about Glenfiddich. I poured some Glenfiddich flights. And as he left, he gave me his card and said, I am the Glenfiddich brand manager and I would love for you to send me your resume. So... I became the Glenfiddich ambassador for first the Southeast and then all of the East. And then right before I left, I actually got promoted to national ambassador, which not a lot of people know because it was in the midst of COVID. Um, yeah. I was very excited and I was like, yes, you know, I gotta, I'm going to take over the nation. Everyone's going to love Glenfiddich. And then I was actually approached by Fawn Weaver, who was starting this program with the nearest and with Uncle Nearest and Jack Daniels. And she said, what is your dream? I mean, and when someone says that, come on. So I actually, before joining Glenfiddich, I had been working with Dave Pickerel. I had gone out to Whistlepig, helped them start up. I was working with a small distillery in Florida as well, helping them with their bourbon production. And I just still had this real passion for production. So I said, I would love to be a distiller. And so they put me into the Nearson Jack Initiative, which is a program. Um, I was a leadership acceleration program where they chose people already in the whiskey industry and basically gave you access to whatever you wanted to make sure that you were getting to the next role that you really wanted in your career. So I um, kind of built a curriculum around a lot of education, a lot of certifications, and also touring around the United States working with different distillers who I've been, you know, drooling over for such a long time. And I have had the most incredible time. I also decided to go incredibly nerdy. And I'm actually finishing up right now the last module for my diploma in distillation from the Institute of Brewing and Distilling. I've already passed my first two modules, so I am a diplomat bit, and I'm now uh, independent. I was like, what's the word? I'm mm -hmm. independent and working with different, like kind of in consulting work. I'm also doing a lot of education, which if you haven't checked out my Instagram, Spirit of Tracy, I do try to do a lot of education and really making whiskey approachable. That's my biggest thing. Whiskey is such an awesome category with such diversity. There is something for everyone. And I think so many of us have maybe growing up, we're taught that, you know, it's for men, it's too strong, it's too this, it's too that. And I just want to really come at this and, and break all of those myths apart and show people that this is a category that is open to everyone. So that's really me in, in a very long nutshell. <laughs> oh, that was beautiful. I mean, that's, that's the beauty and, and obviously the passion. Okay, so, so yes. when you're at this bar in Tampa and you're starting to develop your whiskey palate, where are you going or are you equal opportunity? Scotches, bourbons, ryes, uh, Indian, Japanese, it doesn't matter. You're going like on a foodie tour or are you drawn to a specific thing and why? All right. So this is actually a different story. So I, I had already been building my palate before Tampa. So, but on the road, the very first whiskey that caught my eye, like didn't catch my eye, it actually caught my nose, was this really robust uh smell of burnt rubber and band-aids and dead fish yay <laughs> <laughs> so i so dead, hard that I like the dead but across the room yeah yeah and you know that merit oh, i'm like I <laughs> so i smelled it across the room and i was just like what is that like it smells like somebody just lit up a tire what is happening 
And uh, so the bartender came over and said, this is a peated scotch whiskey. I I didn't know what that was, really. I had been, just, no. you know, more just sipping on more bourbons and things. Because like, that's what all your all their friends did. I, and didn't really know there was this incredible category called single malt scotch. So I tried Ardbeg 10 and my world was changed. I, like, the hair stood up on my arms. I was like, whoa, this is the epitome of flavor. This is insane. So being that I love pursuing flavor, I kind of stuck in and peat world. And I just loved the fact that it was the strongest thing I could I could drink. Like it was the most potent flavor I could find. And then I happened to be out in New York with a friend, one of the ambassadors I had reached out to, and they said, I think that you would actually like uh open 14. I was like, I don't know, haven't had it. And I got it and I was like, this doesn't taste like much. And they said, Hmm, I think your palate's skewed. <laughs> And it totally was. <laughs> All I was drinking was peanut whiskey. Like, I just didn't know anything else, really. Yeah. And so I really, so then I, I was on a mission. And luckily, I was in New York where I had a lot of friends and a lot of people who were willing to make sure that I got whatever I needed. And so I went back to bourbon and said, okay, let's start over. And so I went back to bourbon and was like, okay, I understand bourbon. And that's actually why I think bourbon is actually a great place for people to start because it's very clear flavor profiles. You could buy a corn. Yeah, I don't, it's fine. I, for I, I like to say it's, yeah, I'd like to say it's non-threatening. It's an yeah. experience, and and it's palatable unless you're doing cast strings or barrel proof right. and stuff like that. Absolutely. In general, it's it's just it's designed to be. I mean, it's a really weird word, but it's creamy. Like it's just creamy yeah. and like delicious and like cool, like non-threatening. Like I didn't go peat, I didn't go yep. cask, I didn't go sherry. I just was yep. like, hey, this is enjoyable. Right, absolutely. So that's why I definitely do recommend that for for people that are just getting started. Because it feels good to be able to say, ooh, this tastes like vanilla. And actually, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And actually catch that note. Um, so from that, I said, okay, let's go a little. I wanted to, to spice it up a little bit more. So I went into rye. And I just, I still do really enjoy a good rye. Um, if you haven't had the Dipple collaboration, it is one of my favorite things right now. And so from rye, then I went back into a single malt scotch and really explored more of Speyside and Highlands and things and kind of got into the lighter and then into the more rich uh, components uh, in Scotland with the, more, the richer brands and some of the, you know, light nuanced lowlands and things like that. So I then realized, okay, I've got a whole world now to work on. And that's when you know, understanding how Japanese whiskey was different from Indian whiskey, was different from Taiwanese whiskey, was different from what Mexican whiskey. So now, my my before I left New York, I felt like I was really open to everything, which is why when I sat down and realized I had all a whole world of whiskeys behind me to play with, I was already really kind of tapping into all sorts of different things to really give the best experience I could to any guest who came. And when these guests are coming in, because you're so passionate and because you're so knowledgeable, <laughs> they they leave. They leave like excited. I mean, I you know, I, I I do the same thing with with my Instagram where I try to be really educational to people about yeah. brands that people might not have heard of that don't have million dollar marketing budget. Exactly. They make really good whiskey. And I get obsessed with I mean, I just geek out on the passion of the people that make the whiskey. Because yeah. like that job the beginning of the beginning of the beginning before it goes into the barrel is really a huge part of the end result. Absolutely. And I think that with, you know, the last couple of years, you've seen barrels and barrel finishes and all that kind of stuff play a part in the uh, adapting of the product that's inside it. But it's that starter product that has to be good to yield a good end result. Absolutely. Because, uh, I mean, maturation can only fix so many fun. You know, you're going to have some of that that's going to be fixed in the charcoal in the barrel. You're going to have some that will evaporate. Some of it will be transformed. So sort of flavors will be minimized. Um, 
but you can't get, there are certain things that just will, you cannot get rid of specific flavors. So you have to be, you have to have a good distillate when you start, but also something that people don't think about is you also have to, you have to quality wood. So I had a whiskey recently that I tasted that someone sent and I felt really bad for them because it was an oak that was obviously forced dried, but it was so green. It was so green. Like, and I, and I felt bad because it was a six year. So they had spent a little money. They wanted to get the right thing, but it did not, it, it, it was wrong. Like it tasted bad. And it's because whoever was making it for them didn't spend the money on the oak. And so there are every component within whiskey making has an effect. And that's something that I actually have this whole seminar that I created because I wanted people to understand how many levers there are that are that you can control in the flavor of your whiskey. And so from the beginning to the very end, I mean, talking about like, you know, just like what kind of water you're putting into proof down to go into your mm-hmm. bottle is incredibly important. So I love it. <laughs> no, I, th- I, I and I think you bring up you bring up a good point that the consumer has no idea there are not a lot of barrels available yes that is a big issue scarcity and you have you know you have this company you're talking about that spends this effort on the distillate yeah and they're like well we've got this money invested we got to get something out and somebody probably says hey i'm not a hundred percent they're like do we have no choice you can't you can't you know you can't do this in a steel drum and finish it there i got to put it in wood (laughs) and they're like i like it it's kind of like, oh, okay, yeah. And then like, oh, maybe it'll be fine. But it's like, you think of that six-year juice. You know, I always tell people, you can't, you can't microwave whiskey. It takes time. Uh, absolutely. And you can't show up early and expect it's going to be great. And there's some guys that do all day long, and it works for different things, but not for the flavors that you and I are just like so captivated by. You know, it's like, right. it takes time. Let Mother Nature do its work. But like you said, there's all these different tools, the water, the yes. wood, the distillate, yeah. the person, the grain. The, I mean, there's a whole lot of ingredients that have to happen to get that, you know, that end product that's, oh, wow, this is a great moment. Right. Well, that was, I mean, so that was one of the biggest things when Peerless came out. Remember, everybody was freaking out. They're like, why is this two-year ride good? You know what I mean? Like, why is this good? Like, and as we've seen Peerless get even just a little bit older, we've seen that complexity come in. But they were starting with such a great grain and doing their sweet mash and such a, you know, the distillate was so clean that then in those two years, there wasn't a lot of, of uh, adjustment that needed to be made. So it was all focusing on the oxygenation and, and really just improvement. So because they had that really good distillate, so it can, you can, hmm, totally. I don't want to say this wrong way. Like you can, there are steps you can take to improve your chances of having a good whiskey at a younger age. But you, but it's very difficult, and there are people that are working on it. <laughs> it's very difficult. well because the market demand is the market Absolutely. demand is silly right now. So they're kind of like, I mean, I look at Peerless, and to me, it's like, you know, I, I like to use a lot of cooking terms on the show. Okay, they're like they they're like sous vide the ingredient, so they like you know it's different before they put it in there. So they're able yes. to just get it done in two years because they haven't treated the ingredient normally. They haven't just right. pulled out a raw steak and be like, yeah, all right, now we're going to cook this amazing piece of Wagyu A5. They're like, actually, we sous-vide <laughs> it. It's already like 30% yeah. cooked, and yeah. we've added a ton of flavor in there, and it just needs to be finished in the barrel. And right. we've been able to pull it off in a shorter period of time, which yeah. is becoming a trend right now because of the demand. I mean, if you think when you got in the business, how there really was a top shelf in a liquor mm. store, mm-hmm. which was like untouchable. You know, mm-hmm. like, 
You would walk in there and be like, you would spend $2,000 on a whiskey. <laughs> now they got that. Now they got, you know, and no disrespect to Henry McKenna, but they got $50 whiskey in the glass case now because the 2000 stuff is sold out. Right. <laughs> people, people will pay whatever. It doesn't think there's no, like, I watch as an investor, collector, and drinker. I'm like, right. there's seriously no ceiling on the financial. And I think that's also allowed brands to kind of be like, man, we didn't even know we could pull this barrel out. Hey, of what it's going to cost us to release it. Ah, screw it. Let's do it. Oh, sold out. Oh wow! You got, yeah, you got another one back. You got another one back there in the Rick House somewhere that we don't know what to do with. You can't use it for anything else. Yeah, we got a thirty-seven-year-old da 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 da. Yeah, absolutely. On the market, you know, like thousand dollars a bottle. I think before those were the ones going to independent bottlers. You know, they were like, "Oh, this yeah. one isn't really in our brand style. This is something that's off-putting. It's just not off-putting, but like it could be delicious. But this is just not what is quintessentially our brand." So then you would send it off to these independent bottlers who would then release and you got this really wonderful kind of off note that, that it was produced. And now they're realizing, oh, wait, nobody cares. <laughs> no. <laughs> we I mean, can do that under our brand. Yeah. Yeah. I'm buying like 27-year-old jurors from independent bottlers yeah. for like 400 bucks. You're right. And you're like, yep, a juror 25 does not cut that little because that's <laughs> on brand. A Macallan 35 for like 800 bucks. That is not on brand for Macallan. And what a north of 30 costs. But these yeah. independent bottlers, which I'm like buying a ton of on auction lately to drink right. because there's no yeah. there's no investment value for me in that for the kids' right. college funds. So it's kind of like, wait, like I, I, a 27-year-old juror, a 35-year-old yeah. Callan, and, yeah. and it goes on, a 40-year-old Glenn Elgin. Like, I'm just like, oh, man. that person, that person who put that whiskey in the bottle 40 years ago in the yeah. barrel, he didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have that email. He went well, to work and just made whiskey. And, and, and on a Friday, he hoped to take a gallon home so he could drink <laughs> it on the weekend. I mean, we hear these stories of like, you know, house wine and house whiskey. And yeah. hey, gra grab, a, grab, a, grab something to carry it home in. Right. And fill yourself right. up and enjoy. Yep. And then here we well, are in 2023 where it's like there's this, there's so much knowledge and there's so much great whiskey and there's so much marketing and there's still industry leaders because they've invested tons of money to own the market and own the yes. bar. I mean, you know, you worked in the bar circuit. You know that there's yeah. certain brands that are on the shelf because they swipe in credit cards. Absolutely. To get that position. And Absolutely. That's, that's not going to stop. I mean, I've been in bars where people have walked in and ordered something where I'm like, you do know there are other 18-year-olds that are really good and not <laughs> And they're like, no, like that's the one I drink because like, exactly. I saw it in G2 it's magazine. symbol. Yeah, it becomes a status symbol. And it's getting crazier. And I'm okay I'm okay wrapping my head around it. I mean, I think we're in an interesting period right now where because it's been such a boom the last four or five years, that now it's kind of like, well, yeah, we know people want whiskey. Okay. Yes. Well, now you're starting to price yourself out of the market. Mm -hmm. And what is that market? You know, because now you have real investors, you have faux investors, you right. have luxury drinkers. You have yeah. drinkers, and, and then you have that whole group that I call, like, numb the painters that just use <laughs> liquor for what liquor was, like, probably uh, back in the 1900s, just yeah. to numb the paint. But they yeah. are buying top shelf with they, you know what I mean? No, 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 but they're getting confused <laughs> as well because uh, uh, okay. I used to pay I used to pay twenty five dollars yeah. and now it's thirty six dollars. I've never even thought about that. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Well, because the costs went up. There's no wood. 
You know, so You're right. everything everything went up during COVID. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, wait, what about that guy that just literally life is not so amazing and he's using whiskey to go to sleep? You know, like he's now going like, well, do I switch to tequila? You know, what Because <laughs> tequila and rum. No, tequila's gone now. Oh, and the rums and the mezcals. And I'm watching what they're doing with the rums and these aged yeah. rums. I'm drinking like 22-year-old yeah, rums, 25-year-old rums. And I'm like, yep, whoa. Whoa, this yeah. to sip on is like next level. These sip tequilas are wild. Mm-hmm. You know, like these super high end. I, I I got a bottle of Casa Dragones the other day. Yes, of course. Uh, yes. And I was just like, I'd never, I mean, you know, tequila was, you know, I ran restaurants and nightclubs. Tequila was shots. Right. So now it's like, well, hey, wait a second. Like, I don't feel like drinking cast strength whiskey, which I really yeah. am today. I'm going to take something easier on my body. Yeah, and I'll have some tequila. And I do think that that's exactly what's happening. I think that because of the boom in within whiskey, other aged categories are realizing if we appeal to this category, if we, but, but often what I also worry about though, is that people are changing like their traditional styles. So like some of these cognacs that are coming out with so much more American oak and like they're changing their traditional flavor profile to appeal to bourbon and whiskey drinkers. And that makes me kind of sad because I do love that there are all of these different uh, flavor profiles you can find within the world of spirits in general. And so as we're starting to do things like aging mezcal, which is not traditional, but they're doing it because it's appealing to people who drink whiskey. I I'm, I, I'm I mean, should we, should we go elephant in the room? They can charge more. Hey, and you're there. Okay. All right, cool. That too. That's 300 bucks. You're like, what, what did yep. the cost of business do for you? Oh, no. Yeah. You know, like, okay, can't do it. And because we're all primed to pay, you know, $300 for a bottle, we're the ones that go out there and do it. We're like, oh, great, mezcal's only at $250 a bottle. Cool, this aged mezcal, I'm going to get that. So I think it's also... And think about the cocktail programs. Yeah. Now, like, I remember when I was working, like, cocktails were 8 to $10. Now they're 17 to 25 they Absolutely. They cost more than an appetizer. Absolutely. Like, sure do. Because, sure do. I because mean, you will put... We were pushing wine back in the days, you know, in, in my uh, restaurant, you pushed wine. Now you're like, oh, no, I, listen, we have a cock, we have a scotch menu and a bourbon menu. And yeah, you can pay $700 for a Mictus yep. celebration. Great. I'd 100%. rather say that than a bottle of Opus One. Cool. 100%. So I took you 700 no matter what. <laughs> uh-huh. Trace, I, got, I, I, got a, I got a question for you, a fun one. Give me, give me one or two experiences that really stand out that mm. blew your mind and it could be the early stuff with dave i mean whatever i'm just like all right there's what so many experiences? things i know that's why it's hard it's always a hard one this question when i ask it yeah so i mean the first one though that popped into mind was actually my time with westland whiskey i was really really lucky that i was able so matt actually took me matt hoffman is the master still there and he took me to the bread lab which is run by steven who um basically what they're really doing is Westland whiskey is committed to becoming a distillery that runs off of grain that is all non-commodity. So what happens with the commodity wow. market is they are we are forced as farmers to create wheat. I'm not a farmer. Farmers are forced <laughs> to grow grains of a specific type, size, no matter where they are in the United States, to fit into the commodity market. Like they are judged based on the size of this like sort of ideal grain. So whether you are in Seattle or you are in Florida, that grain needs to be the same. And that actually causes a lot of trouble. It makes people use things that are not meant to actually go into the soil. It is in certain areas, you're not necessarily supposed to grow that specific type of grade. 
So we are hurting the environment. We are hurting our farmers. It's just a lot of bad things. And also we're now coming, you know, we're minimizing the diversity in our, our actual grain, which is going to cause issues if we get any sort of weather, if we get disease. So it's a whole mess that I didn't really understand until I went to the bread lab where they are working on increasing our access to all different sorts of grain, understanding how to use grain in your particular region, um, which gives you more flavor. It, it, it uh, It's better for your soil. And so being able to go out there, they have a full library of just like all hundreds and hundreds of different barleys. It was amazing. Wow. And just, uh, you know, understanding how this can, how moving forward this knowledge as distillers, as um, maltsters, how we can start to work within our communities to support each other. Because honestly, farmers get the short end of the stick in so many different ways. And if we are able to pay them a little bit more, keep this amongst ourselves, really help the earth by growing things that are meant to be grown in that particular region of the United States, we could do some really wonderful things. So honestly, for me in my career, that is something that has really just changed my mind about how I want to move forward, what I want to talk about, and what I appreciate. Because the earth is in trouble and this is something something that we can do locally it's something that we can do and be mindful of um i understand there are large large distilleries but this is something like as craft distillers that can be thought about right like how do you work with your local farmers to have them grow things that are meant for your region that gives you that also that talking point of growing local grain that maybe was heirloom or even if it's not heirloom it's something that's meant for your specific region so it's it's, you know, it, it's meant for the amount of rain that you get. It's meant for the specific bugs and things that are in your area. And so you don't have to use a lot of other, for, um, you know, chemicals on your, on your spoon. Uh-huh. So that was an incredible opportunity for me, which really just opened wow. my mind to another aspect of whiskey making that I really hadn't uh, pursued before. Wow. Um, that is because I've, yeah. because I, I've, I've been, I've been with distillers where they're like, we have to like beg the farmers to grow non-GMO crops and like mm-hmm. beg them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they're like, wait, we don't know. Like, you're the only one buying it. What if you don't buy exactly. it? Exactly. wants it. I'm like, oh. Exactly. Because like, it's not a commodity. If it doesn't yeah. fit in the commodity market, they can't sell it. Like, they're not assured. They, it has to be the specific type. And the reason is because, you know, 90% of all of the corn that's going, it's going to be going for food, going for manufacturing. So it has to go through the specific type of mills, the specific type, you know. And we understand that, but we can start to change this. We can start to put more flavor and more variety back into our food if we really get more mindful about this. So just just something that, um, yeah, I really love. Okay, what else? Uh, another thing. Oh gosh, there's so many things. Um, I mean, honestly, my I would say, I and it's it's not about, it is about people. So it's being at Glenfiddich. So one of the wonderful things that I was allowed to do when I was worked with Glenfiddich as an ambassador was we can go there whenever we wanted not just go there but you actually i would just be like hey i want to work for two weeks and they were like cool we'll get you boots and a hat and a vest and i would just they put me in a little bungalow and i would just every day or i would go somewhere else and i'd work with somebody and i just found myself in the lab and i was freaking out and that's one of my favorite 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 places to be is in the lab at glenfiddich where it was just quality control but it was really understanding like okay well today we're going to quality control with with the grain today we're going to do it with the the you know low wine today we're going to look at the distillate today we're going to look at the metric because there's so many different things and so many markers and uh precursors and things that you look for within all of these different elements that go into whiskey and it was just wonderful it was before i had started the program i'm in now so 
it's kind of what sparked this need to learn more because I realized, wow, there's a whole world of whiskey that honestly no one around me was asking about either. So no, I, because they uh, just want the finished, they want the finished product. They don't want to look yeah. behind the scenes doesn't matter. I mean, that's where I geek out. That's where you yeah. geek out. Cause it's like, hey, <laughs> finished, product, finished product these days is pretty darn good for the most part, but like exactly. what's it take to get there? What makes exactly. you different? Like, Who's the who's the chef? What are the what was the chef's idea? Where was the concept thing <laughs> from? What's the quality control like? You know, what's the kitchen look like? Like I was, yeah. Whoa, that is wild. It is. Well, Trey, it I is. can't thank you enough for coming on today. Seriously, I love I love the passion. I know you have it. That's why I had to have you <laughs> on here. Um, do you want to give any? Uh, you want to you want to uh, your Instagram or website or anything? Oh, absolutely. You yeah, Please. so my website is spiritedtracy with an ie dot com. Um, my Instagram is spirited underscore. I have both, but Instagram's stupid and won't let me get my other one back. <laughs> spirited underscore Tracy with an ie. Um, yes, find me on either. Check out my website. I love to do educational opportunities, cocktail events. I do all sorts of fun things, and I'm really gonna be trying to focus in a little bit on my Instagram. I promise. I like I say this all the time, but and so I I start to get into work, right? So like I'm studying for this diploma, and it takes so much time. But I I really also really love sharing the things that I'm learning with everyone. So feel free to follow me on my Instagram and send me comments, uh, things that you want to learn. So I'm very very open to suggestions. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I can't thank you enough, and really, I can't wait to see you again in person. I know it would Coming be lovely. On and everyone, oh, we'll make it happen. Everyone, please follow Tracy. I appreciate everyone listening today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Captain. Thank